and gentlemen, it's Hope Dealers with my friend and co-host and Emmy Award winning co-host. Here we are, Beth Troutman. <laughs> What's up, Beth? <laughs> hey there, Derek. Happy day to you. It is always so much fun to be in a room with you, hearing your voice. I feel better just as soon as Hope Dealers comes out of your mouth. Thank you. It's great. <laughs> I'm sure you got something positive and just emotionally touching for us, right? You know I do. Today's story, today's good news story of the day is actually pretty simple, but, um, you know, we've had a lot of uh, tragedy uh, recently uh, in the news, and a lot of people are feeling hopeless, like there's nothing that they can do. And I want this story to remind people that little things, small things can make a huge difference in people's lives and within your own community. There's a woman named Sally Dolly. She's in Auburn, California. And talk about taking something simple. She was just really frustrated with litter all around her neighborhood. And so a few years ago, about three years ago, she started just picking up cigarette butts. And they call her the butt lady, the Auburn butt lady, which is totally different. (laughs) Wow. She just started going around and picking up cigarette butts. Just this past week, she picked up her one millionth cigarette butt just in her community. And because she does this, it inspires other people to, A, stop littering. When they see her, they're just inspired by her. It's inspired some people to quit smoking, which was one of her hopes. But more than that, people in other communities have reached out to her to try to figure out ways to create community betterment programs, you know, for all kinds of people to get out and do this kind of thing. So it's, it's just a reminder that small things can make a huge difference, that you never know when something is going to touch someone, and you never know when just something as small as picking up cigarette butts might make a huge difference in your community. So if you're feeling out of control or if you're feeling like there's nothing you can do to make this world a better place, something as simple as picking up a cigarette butt can make a huge difference. And I loved that wow. story because Sally Dolly's made a difference just with cigarette butts. Now, yeah. talk about inspiration. I mean, you know, that that's the point of the show, Hope Dealers. We have a guest today. We're going international. We've right. got someone from across the pond on our podcast yes. today. And yep. Derek, I want you to introduce him. You, you've you known this fella for about seven, eight years now. Right. He is just an unbelievable soul, just a right. good human. And I know he's going to make people feel better about the world and about their own lives. So let's let's introduce this guy. All right, this guy has a great backstory. I met him about eight years ago at a world conference for the IFCO, International Foster Care Organization Conference. Hope is beyond the United States of America. There is hope internationally, right? And so there are hope dealers everywhere. And so our newest hope dealer is Ian Thomas. And Ian Thomas has an incredible story of recovery, of being addicted to crack, of being addicted to heroin, to living on the streets in the United Kingdom. And then being the strongest advocate, being a voice for homeless, for recovery, for foster care, for uh, incarcerated addicts. And so we are so honored. Hope Dealers, Ian Thomas. Let's go. Yo, yo. Thank you. Thank you. I love that accent, man. I love that accent. I know. We could listen to <laughs> yeah, you talk all day. And we're so thrilled that you are here to share your story. You've got a TED Talk that's out there online. I just watched it earlier this afternoon. Derek kind of went over a little bit about your story. But fill our listeners in on who you are and how you got to where you are today, dealing so much hope and love and kindness to people. Well, thank you for having me on the show, first and foremost. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm feeling the love, man, all the way from where you are. You know, over here it's UK all day, but right now we're, we're international. And 
I think that you know there's a lot to be said for social media, but but you know um, it, you know this this is one of the beautiful moments of social media where you can find a connection and and you know and we can reconnect our humanity and deal some hope out. So I'm, I just want to express some gratitude for having me on today. So thank you. You know, and I guess really, uh, I mean, to t touch on the TED Talk, you know, I started it with my name's Ian, I am an addict. But, you know, although that's a very important part of my identity, I'm so much more than that. You know, I'm, a, mm -hmm. I'm an employee, a university student and somebody who makes a positive contribution to society today. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess, you know, my experience um, is quite broad, really, in personally, professionally. Um, you know, I, I started life, you know, in, in a family that, you know, had its adversity, had its struggles. And and my perception of that experience has changed somewhat over the years. It's, it's not been static. And I guess that's because as I've grown, you know, into a, a, a more deeper, meaningful human being, my understanding has grown with that. And I guess before I speak about my family or, or some of my experiences, I've come to realise that there's just no such thing as blame. There's no such thing as blame. It, it's not. It, it's not that black and white for me, you know. But mm. but I need to start with that. Um, you know, I was a looked after child from the age of nine. I was in and out of the care system. Uh, I lived with about twenty different families, several children's homes. Mm. I, I was in a lot of pain as a young child. Um, the, the, and I think for me, it's a lot about the thinking and the feeling. Uh, the first feeling I could ever identify was fear, and I masked that fear with anger. And that kept people away. That that allowed me to feel a sense of safety. And although in reality I was cutting off from humanity you know, and going deeper, deeper within that and being more and more isolated, it served a purpose and that's why I did it. And although it was a destructive coping mechanism, it was one that allowed me to feel safe. And, and you know, and I really believe that this was the blueprint when, when my relationship with my mother broke down. You know, I would... Any situation that became valuable to me, fear and anxiety of loss and abandonment would overwhelm me and create a compulsion to act out on that feeling. And it almost become like an obsession. And then I started, um, you know, I, I, I'd start to, to discredit people or find reasons to think why they didn't like me or love me. And, and within that was a core belief system. And, and I had a belief system that I was unworthy of receiving love. Mm. And I now know that our belief system is the engine that drives our behavior. You know, and if you want to know what someone believes, examine their behavior, examine the words they say. And that's how I've come to understand my belief system is by examining my behavior, my thinking and, and my, my reactions to the world. And today I try to develop a healthier response. But it's a work in progress because I'm still a human being. And how powerful to, to recognize that you are masking your fear with anger and what a powerful message to send to other people when you uh, you come across someone who might be angry your message is to deal with them with kindness and compassion rather than matching the anger because there's something beneath that anger that's very vulnerable right they're not speaking their truth exactly and and you know i mean today there's so much more to my story that we probably haven't you know discovered yet or explored yet but I think today, you know, I mean, I work in a national role for the leading children's services in the UK and, 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 and I was doing international work for them when I met Derek. And, and you know, I've worked with foster carers, so that's caregivers, I think, the language you use in the USA to, to describe that. And, and, you know, I've worked with hundreds of foster carers all over the UK, you know, 
one-to-one in seminars in conferences in small groups workshops training you know and, and and i always say that you need to remember that these children they have a catalog of evidence to suggest that you're going to leave them you're going to abandon them and you're going to let right. them down because that's been their experience yeah. and it takes wisdom to see intention but we're often judging our actions so it's about and and the behavior and when i hear children's people adults say about children yes that is an angry child or that is a child that does x y and z no the the, the behavior is just a symptom of something going on so not why the behavior but why the pain What's right the pain? Uh, right and that's why i tell audiences too the behavior is just a story mm-hmm. yeah you know that sometimes they can't tell you uh, I'm sad, I'm hurting, I'm in pain. So it's fight or flight mode or it's just survival mode. And, you know, unfortunately, it's our behavior that is communicating. And, you know, and it, when you had these behavioral issues with the anger, were you taking it out on people? Were you getting in fights a lot on the streets of London or something, you know? <laughs> the truth yeah. is, Derek, yeah, I, there were moments where I was violent. Yeah. There were moments where I hurt people, but I spent most of my growing up being quite malnourished from the amount of drugs I was taking. Mm. You know, and, and, and my truth is that it, it's very sad. You know, uh-huh. from the age of 10, I took my first drug. You know, uh-huh. by the oh, age wow. of 13, I was so skinny and underweight. You know, people would look at me like, you know, are, are you dying? You know, uh-huh. and, and, and by the time I was sort of 21, I'd spent my 21st birthday sleeping under a boat on Brighton Beach. You know, uh-huh. and and I, I, you know, I couldn't. The veins in my arms were disappearing. I hadn't washed my clothes for weeks on end. You know, I, I was hopeless. And and the only sense of relief I would get is when I'm having that hit in a multi-story car park somewhere, or or in McDonald's toilets, which was one of my injecting sites. Mm-hmm. You know, being emotional, thinking I don't want to do this. Why can't I stop? Right. And and and. You know, and and but but yeah, I got in scrapes, and and I ended up in prison at the age of eighteen. Right. You know? And 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 then whenever I went to prison, I felt this sense of relief because when mm. the door shut at night time, and I got my tobacco and a book and a basic meal, I felt this sense of safety and warmth and contentment. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't real contentment because no right. one could hurt me more than I could hurt myself. Right. But, but the truth is. You know, when we reject people from society, which is what happens when we incarcerate them, right. we confirm a negative belief system that they carry about themselves, which they're unworthy, that they are going to be rejected and that they don't deserve compassion, kindness. And the way that I had to behave in prison, which was conducive to my survival, wasn't conducive to the kind of conversations we're having now and the message of hope, of love, compassion and kindness for people who are in the struggle. That, and the world didn't give us permission to be that. Right. You know, I I have a, another friend that spent seven years in prison, and the last two years were spent in the shoe, isolation. Oh, man. 23 and a half hours in the shoe, right? Or in isolation. You get out for half an hour in a fence, right? This fence cage, basically. And he was in for heroin. And I asked him, I, he's my friend since he's been out. You know, I met him at an event. And I asked him, when you were in that prison in isolation, were you thinking about heroin? He goes, no, Derek, I was thinking about having a human connection. Why do you think I'm taking heroin? Right? Yeah. Because I'm trying. So I'm, and so I said to him, so in a way, the strongest drug out there is like human connection. And if it's you love. can't get that, yeah, it's love. And if you can't get that, you're going to self-medicate and find something else that's going to bring you. 
and I can explain that quite clearly because you know a lot of people when they take heroin they say it felt like a warm soft hug or a warm blanket mm. and and you know I, I, I work in a treatment center every Wednesday evening I volunteer and I take a group and I've worked with lots of different addicts and being a, a proud member of a recovery support group that supports addicts on a 12-step program in the UK, you know, you you hear addicts say, when I took care of her and I got that warm, soft hug that I was looking for. Now, when a mother hugs a child, there's a chemical release in the brain called serotonin Mm -hmm. for the mother and the child, okay? And and when you ask heroin addicts, you know, about their childhood, they'll often tell you that there was some trauma, separation or loss, okay? And when you take heroin, it releases serotonin in the brain. So that tells us that there's something missing, doesn't it? Yeah. And you know, and they're just looking for love. And for me, you know, the harder I asked for love, the harder it made people to harder it was for people to be able to love me. Until there was just me, the syringe and the drug. You know, as people are listening and they're thinking about their own addictions or their own pasts, when what was the turning point for you that that helped you along the way? Was it love from someone? Was it compassion from someone unexpected? What what turned the tide for you and your story? You know, I wanted to get clean long before than I did. You know, I, I remember writing letters to myself, you know, and, and sending reminders on my phone to get help. And in, before I answer your question fully, I think it's important that I just describe what addiction feels like. So addiction is an obsession of the mind. An obsession is a thought that excludes all other thoughts and creates a compulsion to act out on that obsession, causing endless loops of self-destructive behavior patterns. Okay, so that's what I was experiencing. Now, I take lots of drugs for a period of days and then afterwards my body couldn't cope anymore. I was in my late teens and I would get what I would call mini surrenders. Okay. And I'd say, right, this is it. Like I I couldn't eat. I couldn't put any more drugs in my body. Like like, I physically had to collapse, you know, and, and, and then I'd get a mini surrender and I'd wake up that morning. I'd say, I'm never doing this again. Mm. Never. I've had enough now. I can't keep putting myself through this. Okay. And it was the same when I got released from prison. If you said to me, Ian, when you get out tomorrow, are you going to use drugs? I would have said no, and I would have meant it. And if you put me up to a lie detector test and, 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 and tested me, I would have passed the lie detector test because I was telling the truth. Mm. But I didn't understand the obsession and the compulsion. I didn't understand that when I get out, something's going to set off a compulsion as a result of my obsession, and I will not have that defense and the ability to choose. And when we take cocaine and crack, it releases dopamine in our brains, okay? And to put that into perspective, you know, when we, when we have sex, dopamine increases by 200%. When we take cocaine, it increases by 1,000%. Wow. And dopamine wow. is the reward chemical. And when we eat, we have dopamine, when we eat food, because it's to remind us to procreate. It's a reward chemical, okay? Now, mm. when you think about taking drugs, it releases dopamine in your brain. So it sets off the obsession and you have a dopamine deficiency as a result of, you know, attachment problems and and attunement from your caregivers and your relationships. So that's what I was up against all the time. And I had no idea about this stuff. Hmm. I had no idea what I suffered with. And I didn't know that I was sick. I didn't know that I was a pro- I had a problem. I just thought I was an awful person who didn't deserve to be loved. Hmm. So and, and the way I kept behaving Okay, just confirm that because of the way people reacted to me and they just reacted to my symptoms, not the problem. 
okay? And the problem was my belief system and my addiction. And, and, and everyone would react to my symptoms. And if I go to the doctor with a cold, the doctor would say to me, what are your symptoms? I'd describe the symptoms and he'd give me some antibiotics to treat the virus, which is the cause. And when you, when you have a cold, if you cough and you sneeze, it's an attempt to make it better. It's the same with being an addict. When you're taking heroin, crack, sex, pornography, compulsive buying, serial relationships, excessive eating, it's an attempt to make it better. So it's not why the addiction, but why the pain. Now, fast forwarding the tape, I was in a police station. I had lots of arrests and charges building up. I knew I was looking at about a seven-year prison sentence based on the based on the offences that I built up, and they kept bailing me out. I don't know why, you know. Mm. And I remember I got arrested stealing DVD box sets out of Virgin Megastores in Brighton, you know, wow. and 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 I was hiding them on this building site and going in and out because my habit was getting so big it was about two hundred pounds a day. And, 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 you know, and the bigger my habit got, the more I had to steal. And I got arrested going in for like the fifth time within an hour. And it's really important I tell you about the DVDs that I hid on a building site. Because when the police came and arrested me from the shop, okay, as he's putting me in the car, he said to me, like he knew me. And it was like very much of a routine process because I was known to him. And he said, listen, Ian, I need to be back on the beat, which is a very British saying, <laughs> Bobby on the beat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having a cup of tea in the break yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. and uh, so he said I need to be back on the beat so don't give me no trouble and what he meant was if we translate that into the world that me and him were both immersed in was if we take you to the police station because it's a shoplifting charge we're going to give you bail but if you want to get out quick don't ask for a doctor when you're withdrawing from drugs and slow down that process. Make this easy for me and I'll get you out quicker because I know you need to use drugs. That was what we communicated in that sentence. Mm. And I thought, brilliant, because I've got all these DVD box sets that I'm not going to tell you about, that you're going to let me out in a few hours. And I'm going to go and get them, sell them and score. Score means buying drugs. It's a very British saying. So. Okay. So anyway, so I get to the police station. I'm starting to feel a bit sick. I'm starting to withdraw. But all I'm thinking is I'm obsessing now about these DVD box sets because that's a means to use. And I went into the, the, the room with a solicitor where, you know, the, the, the lawyer I think you would use. And, and we sat down and then, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, let's get on with it. I want to get out of it. And she just stops and she just looks at me and she says nothing. And then she just said to me, what's happening? And I said, what do you mean? And she says, your complexion, your weight, it's like you, you and, and I can't really reiterate what she said to me because I was in so much trauma at the time. But it's as if she held a mirror up to me. And, and the reason I was able to see that mirror, OK, and bearing in mind I was in denial. Denial is a psychological coping strategy. It's designed to keep us emotionally stable in unstable times. And denial is, is, is a very valuable resource for human beings. And when we're supporting young people and children and, and addicts or anyone who's experienced trauma in, in working through their denial, it's a big responsibility. So we shouldn't let our arrogance for truth override their coping strategy because we're the ones that have got to leave them without it. And I tell mm -hmm. that with foster carers a lot. Anyway, and, but she said to me that she used to have a drink problem and she doesn't drink anymore. And that she could see that I was suffering. Mm. And she reached out and she was warm and kind towards me, more so than I could be towards myself at that point. And I took a deep breath and I sat back in my chair and I just said, I don't want to live like this anymore. Mm. Wow. Wow. 
Oh, wow. All right. The tears are coming. I know. <laughs> For me. You know, I'm like, but I can how, feel that. How feel beautiful that. that this this woman just being so warm had such a profound effect on you. I think it's, you know, it's such a, a beautiful thought that, you know, one kind gesture can really make a difference in a human's life, no matter what what's going on in their world. I mean, because you were, as you would probably describe, just on the brink of destruction and just warmth from a stranger really made such a huge difference. Okay, so, so you know, I was, a few weeks before that, I was sat outside a barber shop and, you know, the, 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 to, waiting to go into a homeless shelter where I could get some soup. And the guy that owned the barber shop just come out and he grabbed me and he threw me across the pavement or sidewalk, as you would put it. And he just said, get out of here, you dirty tramp. I don't want to see you around here. You're making the place look a mess. And he was trying to punch me in the head. And, and like all of that stuff really affects you, you know. And I remember kind of like, you know, just looking at the, the normal people doing normal things, feeling so disconnected from, you know, humanity. And, you know, and I just, I remember going into McDonald's toilet and injecting a load of crack and heroin and then and then running out the front and projectile vomiting everywhere because I'd probably overdosed and, and I was passing out and, and everyone would just stare at me like, you know, what's going on with that guy and look at you like, you know, don't come near me and, and, and it was getting dark for me. I remember I, I, I made a load of money dishonestly, you know, and, I, I, you know, I'd, sometimes I didn't want to be on my own. So I'd buy some drugs and I'd go and sit with someone and share some of my drugs with them. Not much, just a little bit, <laughs> like a true addict. And I remember there was this girl called Claire and we, we you know, and, 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 I, I, and I remember I injected this crack in heroin and it was a massive hit. And I, and I, I overdosed and, and, and my heart was raised. And when I overdose on cocaine and crack, my, my, I get this real intense pain in my stomach. And, and I was looking at her to sort of say, help. But I couldn't speak because I couldn't catch my breath because my heart was going so fast. And she just looked at me with jealous eyes and then looked away. And I thought I was going to die. I was, I was overdosing. And by the grace of God, I came through it and I come back round again you know uh, and she was just there watching me you know and uh, and it was and that's how dark it had got for me you know so, I, I was sat in a multi-story car park and there was a girl nine months pregnant injecting herself in her neck oh, oh god no. nine months you know, pregnant oh. and i saw her um i don't know about four or five weeks later and the local authority you know had taken the baby and, and i was smoking crack with her in a car park in at three in the morning so it's just it's a feeling of wanting to be uh, treated like a human too while you're you're homeless on the street, right? And in America, there are people that love to help the homeless, and then there are people that are like, "Why should I give them money? Psh, they're just going to take the money and use drugs or alcohol." So did you have people like that didn't want to give you money? If you, were you out there pandering or or begging for money too? Uh, I was. I was. I spent most of my use in either selling drugs um, oh, okay. um, or, or begging on the streets or shoplifting or stealing from people, uh, whatever it took, really. And, and I get, I, you know, in different stages of my addiction had kind of different characteristics, you know, uh, you know. And, and I mean, there was a time when I would just take lots of ecstasy, lots of cocaine and smoke lots mm. of cannabis and sell it to my mm. friends. But yeah. that doesn't mean I wasn't in any less desperation than when I was sleeping on the streets, because right. it's not a reflection of your external world. It's a reflection of your internal world addiction. I lived in Brighton at the time when I was begging. 
And what was I thinking? I was driven by my obsession to use drugs, okay? I'd abandoned the human being inside of me, mm-hmm. you know? And, and to, to ask someone for money and be street homeless, I, I'd lost all concept of what that had meant. I'd lost any kind of real meaning behind that, you know? I just, I was lost. And... Yeah, my my you know my means was to to get money for drugs, and if I had to explain it, I mean I don't know if you have this in in, in the USA, but we have something called the Big Issue here, which is a mag- magazine that people who are homeless can can sell, um, and and you know they make like a pound coin on each magazine they sell, and it's a way of you know cool. people who are homeless raising some funds, and yeah. and within these magazines it's a bit of advertisement and stuff, and the guy that set it up was formerly homeless himself. Oh, wow. um, and it's a awesome. it's a good it's a good business model because wind rain or shine your clientele and your customers are going to be there you know right. some people there's been an ethical debate about it are we capitalizing on people in vulnerable situations but that, that's not my point here my point is that you know i used to take this magazine and i used to say i know you don't want to buy a big issue mate but have you got any spare change for a hot drink and something to eat and that was my line you know, mm. I wasn't there to stand, you know, and, and that's how I raise money. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I'd have to get enough money, you know, for, for 10, 20 pounds so I wouldn't be sick. Okay. You know, and then I could just feel normal and, and then I'd look to get more money to buy drugs. But the point is that if you kidnapped me today, incarcerated me, made me sleep on the streets, eat out of bins, exploited me, forced me to exploit other people, injected me with all kinds of drugs and concoctions, used dirty needles, unsafe eject- injecting in unsafe injecting places, coming round in stairwells, you know, and all of them things. If someone kidnapped me and did that to me, that'd be an awful crime. But at what point did I give myself permission to treat myself like that? And that's what we need to focus on. Wow. Because, but when I go into schools and I talk to children, young people about addiction and adversity, okay, and 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 the, the diversity in adversity, I ask them to look at the people who are selling the big issue, these magazines, these people who are homeless, and I say to them, do lots of those people look like they take drugs? And it's a fact, you know, that lots of them are in those situations, and 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 they say yeah, and then I say, do they look like they're having fun? And they say no. And then I say, when they're in your position, they were choosing which subjects they wanted to do for their exams. Do you think they said, I want to be street homeless drug addict selling the big issue, wind, rain or shine? Mm. It's not a choice. And for me, that has to be the focus. Mm. So then you were in prison for three years, I think you said. And during that time, you had a lot of self-reflection. Yeah. And started working on being a rapper. And getting some yeah, rhymes man. out, right? And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and and being able to use that 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 voice that you had that had been kept inside, but also use that voice as a creative way to express yourself. He's showing me up, rapping dad right here. But he's got he's got some incredible lyrics and a powerful heart behind it. And Ian Thomas, it. <laughs> IT, man, yeah, yeah. IT, yeah, yeah, yeah. Show us what you got, brother. Show us. Bring that power, that hope right now. 
Okay, okay. So listen, yeah. I was born capable, but grew to be an animal. Operating on these streets is pure cannibal. Like man eat man, dog eat dog. No place to turn. I'm stuck in this thick fog. I'm tired, hungry, and cold. So I look for it out, but that story's never been told. I ask myself, where did this all begin? The true essence of man versus the dark and evil sin. I'm sick of this world. My life is rife with fakes. Do whatever it takes for a bag of brown just to get the nut down. We all set out for a thrill, only to end up dead in an alley with nothing left in this world but an empty one mil. Don't let this bring you comfort, as one will die to see just try this is the up and coming you better get running and hold on to your purse you remember this verse i want to nail my demons in a smoke-proof coffin six feet down underground without a sound i'm a nervous wreck i lost all respect pushing drugs in my veins every day's the same plenty of shame and no fame i need directions every day i pray for protection god please release these demons in me trying to break free i can't eat i don't sleep sweating and possessing a pipe a smoke all night paranoid all day no time to play i love what i hate is this my fate because i'm a living contradiction stuck in the continuing grips of drug addiction man yeah he's throwing it down there that's some deep stuff that um i'm gonna post that poem on the uh the website yeah. But I asked him, I sent him a message, hey, send that to me. And he goes, well, Derek, I've never written it. He just, it's just yeah. in your brain. He worked on it in prison. So it was all in his head. He had never written it down. Man. So, yeah. you That's- know, for me as a rapper, I'll I'll throw some freestyle here or there, but I got to write it down, you know, and and so yeah. that's pretty amazing. It's incredible, you know, that he's yeah. got it all in the head like that, you know. It's so inspiring. Just- I mean, all of everything about you, really, your story, your willingness to to tell your story with so much vulnerability is so empowering to so many people. And I know people who are listening who just heard you rap about your struggles and just heard you talk about your struggles. What can someone do who feels hopeless right now? Maybe they themselves are feeling hopeless. Maybe they're feeling hopeless because someone close to them is is battling demons and is in that cycle of, of addiction and feeling hopeless and and then you know the obsession that you were talking about. What do you recommend? What do you say to people who need that glimmer? That glimmer. Well, I, I, I'd say watch the TED Talk I did. I'd definitely say that. And, and what's that and, TED Talk called? The Gift of Desperation. The mm. Gift of Desperation. Mm. Wow. By I Ian that. Thomas. It, I feel self-conscious making that suggestion because I don't want to appear arrogant. But the response that the TED Talk has had has been inspirational to me. Mm. You know, and, and dare I say, I think the process has inspired me. You know, and, and what I'd say is that I know that you feel this loneliness inside your soul that feels inconsolable. I know that you do things that you didn't mean to do. And I know that you're struggling to understand why you do them. And I know that you're overwhelmed and you feel scared and you feel so alone. And that you're the only person in this world that feels how you feel right now. And I know that every time you try to stop, something happens and you can't. And that means the terror comes back and you have to run, whether that be externally or internally. And that you have to hurt people, whether that be obviously or subtly, because you don't know what else to do. But this isn't a reflection of you. This doesn't define you. This is not the sum of who you are. This is a reflection of your pain. And you're not alone. And whatever it is that you're suffering with, There may be recovery support groups, whether it's drugs or alcohol or codependent relationships. That was a big one for me, relationships, really painful places they took me. 
and 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 or whether it's eating or whether it's sex gambling you know and and try and find somewhere where you can get a sense of belonging and a sense of identification where people may have walked a similar path to you and they can maybe support you through your pain and your struggle and they'll be doing for you what someone once did for them and they're doing for you what you will want to do for someone else Oh, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Uh, that, that, like, Beth, I, I see you're getting a little emotional. No, I'm very emotional. I know, over enough. here. Yeah, I'm a little emotional too. And I, it just takes me to the next thing right here, Ian. Prison doesn't fix them. Prison no. doesn't, it doesn't, they go back in society, right? You, you can take them out of society, but if you don't re- help them change their mindset and help them heal through the trauma the grieving process, right? Sometimes we get stuck in the first few parts of the grieving process. It's just out of control. You go to prison, you get taken out of society, then you get put back on the streets, and there's no resource. And so I know you're a big advocate as well as I am that prison isn't going to fix someone that's an addict. I think that, you, you, you know what, guys? I really believe that we're going to look back 20 years from now maybe you know and we're going to go oh my god did we really do that to people that were suffering from addiction did we really respond like that shame on us just like now how we look back and we think about how we incarcerated people okay for expressing their sexuality which they didn't choose and we demonized them and rejected them from society just how we look back at the different legislation that the british government made you know like the poor law and how we look back at how social work in the Victorian times involved white middle-class women going to poor people's houses, telling them they need to make better choices, when really what they're experiencing was a symptom of socioeconomic disparity. Mm. And we look back at those as professionals and we cringe. We look back at how we spoke to people and we are uh, embarrassment, dread, shame. And, and, and I really believe that addiction you know is a symptom of someone's pain like we've just discussed yeah and and you know every time we incarcerate someone and reject them from society we release them with less social capital now than what they had before they went in you know and and i think the scary thing is uh, you know and this is about love and hope you know but the scary thing is that globally there's politically influential people who make a lot of money out of incarceration and 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 i think i don't want to get into a political conversation right now because that's not yeah. what we're standing for right. today right but 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 we need to understand the bigger picture sometimes you know and 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 you know so, so that's what we're up against too but i believe you know it you know listen my name's not ian and i'm a carpenter and all of a sudden i'm well aware of all these social challenges my name's ian i'm a recovering addict i'm a, I'm a care experienced adult i work for a children's services i'm in a second year university i'm mm. I, I'm, I'm on ted you know, I attend recovery support groups. I sponsor men and take them through the work. I volunteer in a treatment centre. You know, I'm blessed by you people to be given another platform yet again to experience, you know, other people who are experiencing this stuff and to stand in my truth and relish in the grace of God. So I'm doing something. I can do something. And, and, and you know, we can all do something. You know, and all of these problems, you know, the, 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 the public policy that we're up against that incarcerates people, the politics, the prison system, the culture in prison, the culture in society, it's just an imagined reality. And we can and it's only a reality because of the meaning we place on it. 
but it's an imagined reality as a result of the cognitive revolution that separates us from all the homo sapiens uh, as homo sapiens from other mammals and uh, mm. animals around the world that's the only difference so it, it's an imagined reality and we can imagine new realities and and if if we can say to children and young people that their past and their beginning in life doesn't have to define their future society's current situation doesn't have to define its future and we can recognize the tortured soul behind public policy and create healthier, more meaningful, nourishing, humanitarian imagined realities. I, I got to tell you, he needs to come to America and speak to the incarcerated. I, was, mm-hmm. I spoke to a women's population in prison, so incarcerated women. Most of them were in for drugs. I spoke for two hours. And that's when I started getting on the kick a number of years ago where I was like, it's not about correction. It's about connection. It's not about a compliance. It's about alliance. And these individuals don't have anybody to connect to when they get out. They don't have a positive modeling example or someone that's an example of what a healthy relationship is or forgiveness or how to elevate to the next level. So it made me come up with this program, Connection versus Correction. You and I are on the same page there. Mm-hmm. We've got to yeah. help change their mindset and help them heal through the trauma. Otherwise, they're going to keep repeating the cycle. And that's why it's a revolving door in America of incarceration. It's a revolving door. They get out, they come back in. They get out, they come back in. So I'm really proud to have you on this show. And I'm proud that you are in recovery. How long have you been in recovery? I think that's a really important question, Derek. You know, because, you know, I I was clean. vulnerable. I know, it's vulnerable, but yeah. (laughs) I was clean and sober for three and a half years and I relapsed. And I'll be five years again in July. But it is just a day at a time. Right. And and, and the reason why I'm really glad you asked that is because, can we go back to the lady who's been picking up butts? Now, when you talked about that, right, I was like, oh, my God. And now I'm going to tell you why. The irony of this stuff. Okay, it's only because I'm trying to be a responsible, productive member of society today. I'm not swearing with excitement, okay? But, so, my relapse started with littering, okay? So, this in rehab and rehabilitation, they call it a bud, build up to a drink or drug, okay? Now, I had three and a half years clean and I relapsed. Why? Because... You know, I I started to believe the lie that I was worthless and I was unworthy. And I started to behave in ways to try and compensate for that or Mm. cover it up until I couldn't self-medicate anymore without external chemicals. Okay, until and because I didn't take drugs for pleasure. I took drugs because I couldn't bear to be alive with that suffering. Okay, and I stopped the meetings. Okay, and I stopped doing what was right for me. I I forgot my humanity. Okay, because I was gripped by fear because I live in a society that capitalizes on desire and fear because that's Mm -hmm. the symptom of capitalism and stuff. Okay, and and when I relapsed, I came back. And I had to look at why I relapsed. What was that for me? Okay. And, the ver- and I had to chase it back. I had to examine my behaviors to try and work out my belief system. And I started littering. Okay. Now, I'm not necessarily a litter policeman. You know, yeah. I, I'm not out there judging the world for littering. God knows I was a heroin addict sleeping on the street, stealing from everyone around me. Like, I'm not judging people for littering. Please believe me. Yeah. But I started littering. And that's a personal value of mine that I don't litter. I wonder if I got that from sleeping on the streets. I don't know, you know. So, and I started littering. I don't know why I did it. 
and I'd get this little feeling in my heart, you shouldn't do that. Oh. And, and then I'd ignore that feeling, and I'd mm. desensitise to it. And then I'd do other stuff, and I'd get that, you shouldn't do that, Ian. And I'd ignore that feeling too, mm. until I'm ignoring all those little feelings. I've got no personal boundaries, and then the only thing I've got left to do is take drugs because the pain's too much, and I used. And, and I'm really glad you asked me that question, Derek, how clean am I? Because by the grace of God, I'm clean today. But awesome. I'll be five years again in July. And you were asking me earlier, how do I, what's my message to people who may be experiencing what I'm experiencing? And, really, and, you know, if you're anything like me, if you're listening to this right now, and if you're anything like me, you know, you'll be listening and going, well, that's possible for him, but not me. Mm. Because I didn't know there was another way to live. And if there was, it wasn't possible for someone like me. But I'm that someone, someone like you who's listening right now, believing that's not possible for someone like you. I went to do a talk at the university I'm now studying at. They said, you should do a degree. You're an intelligent man. You're articulate and you can process information well. And, you know, the first thing I said to them, people like me don't go to university. And she said, and the lady who asked me, you know, she said to me, can you just hear yourself, Ian? Can we just capture this quickly? Mm. You know, so I'm glad to tell you that I relapsed because addiction, you know, and recovery can and does sometimes involve relapse. It's not necessary, but it can. And it's not how we fall, it's how we rise. Mm. Yes. And I choose today to stay clean. And sometimes that choice is hard for me. I don't have to make that choice alone. Right. And you have a support system, right? Yeah. That's around you. Plus, you're a mentor as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I mentor young people. I support men in the fellowship and the the, the recovery support groups that I attend. You know, know, and you know what it is today? You know, I remember I went to rehab and and I got onto a program and and I just said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. I think that's the best thing for me. You know, and, and the counsellor just looked at me with sadness and, and I couldn't understand what was wrong with her, you know. And uh, now I do, you know, because I've now had a humanitarian response to my suffering and that's why I'm here. And they said to me, Ian, you know, there's one promise and that's freedom from the obsession to use, but there's many gifts. And we promise you that you will have a life beyond your wildest dreams. And if you do these suggested things, go to meetings find a sponsor, work the steps and do service, you will stay clean and you'll have a good life. And you know what? I was just really scared, really scared. And I couldn't see past my pain. I couldn't see past it. And the thing is, right, I said, but I'm just really scared about how much pain I used to be in and how much pain I'm in now and how much pain I'm in and how much pain I'm in. And someone drew uh, drew a line on a piece of paper, okay? And at the beginning of the paper, he wrote fear. And at the end of the line, he wrote, hope and he said this line is your recovery this is your your all your hopes and your desires and and the love that you deserve the love that you're going to receive the connectedness to humanity all the good things you're going to do everything that's going to nourish your spirit this is the line that you're on now this is what you've chosen to come on with the love and fellowship of the people around you fear is pushing you along the line but I promise you, if you stay faithful, if you keep doing this stuff, the fear will wear off. And then I went, but what's going to keep me there then? He says, you'll be drawn by the hope. Mm. Oh. That is the perfect, perfect, perfect way to end this interview. Ian, what a blessing 
your story is. I know that that's a, 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 a bizarre thing to say, what a blessing a story as difficult as yours is, but what a blessing to other people you have become because of your story. And what a beautiful life. What a beautiful way to honor your life and to honor lives of other people, just with love and compassion, no matter where they are on that line between fear and hope. You're, you're doing amazing, amazing things with your story. Thank you. Ian, yeah. my brother, <laughs> let me ask you this. Where do you see yourself in five years? How old will you be in five years? How young will you be? I'll be 36 years old. 36 years old. So 31 right now. So 36 yeah. years old. Where do you see yourself? Because you got I mean, to visualize to materialize, brother. Where do I see myself? I, 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 God willing, I'll be clean one day at a time. Mm-hmm. My hope and prayer is that, that I will never forget where I come from or how painful it is to be where I used to be. I pray that I remain grateful. And, and I'm, I'm at peace and I'm making a positive contribution. Now, that's the inside stuff, really. But the outside stuff is I, I want to write a book about my experiences mm. when I qualify as a social worker. And I want to attach it to theory. I want it to be have a philosophical angle, a spiritual angle. And, and also almost, you know, when I go and talk, I, I pray and I ask God to use me as a vessel, you know. Mm. And I try and get out of the way. Because... I have a massive ego that is driven from a sense, you know, of I'm not worthy. But today, right. humility keeps me here. And and I want to do teaching and speaking and, 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 and I want to change the hearts and minds because I've met with politicians. I met with politicians in Japan, in Russia, in London, yeah. and I can't change them because it's not my job to because I'd know if it was but I believe I can change our hearts and minds and and I'm here to say you know what we don't have to live like that anymore there's another way to live man yes you know yes yes you are the man no I see big things from him look at that Uh, smile look at those eyes show us your guns come on show us your (laughs) your arms too bad people who are listening can't see that we can see it they can't see it it's his his guns are as big as my head (laughs) (laughs) you know what though there's something you need to know about these arms listen it just means that I give better hugs man oh yeah no oh and I'm the hug queen like I'm the queen of long (laughs) awkward hugs that take too long so I'm all excited to just give you a giant hug Wow. I'm available. You ever need a place? That's what my wife is saying. He, oh, he's a ladies' man. <laughs> yes, and he's got that TED talk. You got to watch it. And TED talks are only like 17, 18 minutes long. And it's the gift of desperation from Ian Thomas. I A N T H O M A S. That's a cool name, Ian Thomas. Mm-hmm. So Derek, do you so want to close okay. us out? Oh, yeah. we, we got to do social media for us too before we let you close okay. us out with uh, yeah. with another wrap. Uh, social media for me, Twitter at Beth underscore Troutman or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Beth Troutman. Send me messages. We'd love to have you as a guest on the show. We I'll retweet you. I'll write you back. Whatever. Find me. And how do you spell Troutman? Like the fish and the man. T-R-O-U-T-M-A-N. <laughs> and this is Derek Clark, rapping dad. You can reach me all over social media under R-A-P-P-I-N-G-D-A-D, Rappin' Dad. And, of course, we got to close with something, like, uplifting, positive. Yes. And I got something special today for you, Beth. Ooh. 
Yeah, I, I get a lot of messages on my social media under Rapping Dad, but I want to share something special with you. I got this message that says this. Derek, I aged out of the foster care system two years ago. I have been homeless, dragged into abusive situations to survive, and have been through things regular kids cannot even imagine. I have a little story to tell you. In the past four days, I have slept outside alone. I have no money, have eaten a bag of chips, a hash brown, and some pills to make the pain go away. Today, I got computer access and logged into my Facebook account, and there was your video of you rapping with your kids. Something pulled me in, probably seeing that wonderful family relationship that I never had. Then a link to your website popped up. I typed in the web address, and immediately tears filled my eyes. All I can say is, wow, what are the odds that I'm going through all of this because of the system aging me out, and I'm on the verge of totally giving up on life, and here you are. You may have just saved a kid's life. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you for recognizing my struggle. You will never know the appreciation I feel towards you. This complete stranger that just gave me hope and made me not alone in my darkest times. That's powerful. We love them. We love them. So you just much. love. Listen. And so I wrote a little rap I'm going to end on. Here we go. And if you think your life is not worth living, you're a miracle and you're forgiven. So never give up. Because this is your life. And if you're feeling down, man, that's all right. We all get sad. Don't hang your head in shame. And beautiful rainbows come after the rain. So hold your head high. Keep pushing through the pain. Tell them rapping dead said, push it through the pain. And I know you feel alone. And sometimes we all need love, love. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. Never let the world take light from your soul. Thank you very much. It's Hope Dillas. We look forward to the next episode. Give us a shout out. Give us a call. Give us a message. Beth Troutman, it's an honor to be with you. Always and the award-winning Beth Troutman. Ian <laughs> Thomas, check it out. Hope Dillas. Yes, we sir. love you guys. We'll see you next time. Peace out from the UK all day.